0: This is an ABC podcast. They look like a crustacean. They look like they're they're from Middle Earth, you know. They're they're sort of hunched, sort of lobster-like in some ways.
1: We're resurfacing a program from about seven years ago. Just like a cicada. Emerging from the past anew. It's the sound of heat, it's quintessentially summer, it's deafening cicadas, and the sound is accompanied for me by an icy pole and the soft drift of moist droplets hitting my arms from the trees above. Now, I've always considered that to be cicada pea. And it turns out, it is! And that sort of epitomises my relationship with cicadas. Equal parts wonder, nostalgia, and a dose of horror and irritation. Anne Jones with you, and hundreds of cicadas today on What the Duck? And yes, I do say cicada, cicada. And you might say it cicada, and I'd love that for you. But I did check with ABC Language, we've got some overlords here, and both are acceptable, cicada and cicada. Please don't write to me unless you're willing to write in cicada. Cicadas' eyes sit so far apart that they almost look like insect versions of hammerhead sharks. They've got delicate wings, pointy legs and a large abdomen shaped like a teardrop. The pointy end is their bottom. But I don't know why I'm bothering to tell you what they look like, because the main way that we relate to cicadas is via their sound. No. No, that's crickets. We're talking about cicadas. Dr. Lindsay Popple is an entomologist who also recorded the cicada sounds you are about to hear. Like this choir of the most common of all Australian cicadas, the Greengrocer.
0: Greengrocer, it's like a lot of cicada names, it's a depiction of how they look. They're bright green in colour. They're a bit of a distinctive looking cicada. They've, they've got sort of red or dull red eyes. Their head's quite angulated. But otherwise, yeah, they're bright green all, all over with some um, transparent wings. There's another morph called the yellow Monday, which is yellow. And there's a very rare form called the blue moon. I know some avid cicada collectors. Each year, they'll go and look for cicadas. Occasionally, they'll find this blue moon, but they're pretty sought after. There's another form that's brown. I call that the chocolate soldier. And then there's another form that's mostly up in the mountainous country called the Masked Devil, and it is yellow and black on the head and the thorax and mainly black on the abdomen.
1: We've got Green Grocer, Yellow Monday, Blue Moon, Chocolate Soldier, Masked Devil. They're such poetic names.
0: Yes, um, and there are lots of names that are sort of been inspired by the way that cicadas look. Another one would be flowery baker, which is a strange cicada that tends to sit upside down. Uh, also, They also call it flowery miller because it looks a bit like uh, someone who's just been b- baking bread all morning and they've come back covered in flour because <laughs> they'd really, they look dusty.
1: Some species are also named after what they sound like. How about this creaking branch cicada? All the species sing differently, but more on that later. The adult greengrocer is the cicada that you're most likely to have heard, and it has a complex life cycle. After some months in an egg on a branch, a tiny nymph cicada hatches out and makes its way down the plant right to the ground, and then it starts to burrow, digging a tunnel to a tree root where it latches on for a feed of sap. The nymphs then basically drill into the roots of the plant. They have needle-like rostrums that sucks the xylem from the plant. And as the nymphal stages pass, the greengrocer becomes quite fat and hunched over. Same. It has two front legs that are much larger than the others and they look a little bit like lobster claws. And at this stage, it looks like... A stereotypical ageing butler, the hunchback assistant to Dr Frankenstein, as if it would grovel along and say, Yes, Master, when addressed. They're made for the subterranean world and they'll stay under there for years at a time.
0: I suspect that underground, they're very mobile in that soil environment. You know, you pull them out of the ground and they're, they're sort of bent over and they're sort of hopeless, they sort of stumble around, that it. You look at them and think, that that thing, how does it survive? But underground, they're in their domain and they basically backfill their burrows. They can do flips in these tunnels underground and they they move through the tunnels. So they, they need to be able to move away from potential flooding events underground. They need to sustain air pockets to stay alive. They also need to maintain a food source at all times on the plant roots. They're very different for example, to say, uh, moth or wasp pupae. See, the cicadas don't really have a pupil stage. They have multiple instars, which is basically developmental stages of nymph. And as they get bigger, they shed. They're adapted for life in the soil, underground. and But specifically for Greengrocer, prior to emergence, they form these turrets at the surface. And... If you're looking around you'll see these holes in the garden with with a bit of a mound around them and this is just something that happens a few days before they finally actually emerge. Does it just
1: crawl its way over to the nearest tree? What happens then?
0: They crawl out of the ground, they just sort of scurry along not too quickly usually and, and make their way to a point where they can anchor themselves securely which is a critical stage actually because they're very vulnerable once they actually are emerging, coming out of the shell. You know, if, if the shell gets knocked and the, and the nymph falls down while its wings are growing, those wings will be permanently ruined. So moving from from the burrow onto the tree is a, quite a critical step in, in ensuring that they actually get to reproduce. So if you're underground for seven years and you crawl and you climb up onto a, a twig and you think that'll do and then the twig breaks off and you land on the ground, that's it, you're done, basically. <laughs> And what we see on the trees, what what people notice in terms of seeing cicadas, is usually just the shells that they leave in the final molt. People don't often see the adults themselves. They'll just find the shells.
1: For the final molt, the Igor-like nymph will latch onto a tree and then a split appears lengthways down its back. It's an escape hatch through the exoskeleton. From within the head appears another head, pushing up out of the nymph's shell... The adult cicada has essentially been wearing the nymph skin as a costume for the last couple of days of its life. And let me tell you, the adult is quite a bit bigger than the nymph. It pushes and pulls and the gaping chasm across the shell's back gets wider and wider. And at some stage, the cicada pulls back out of the shell, its rear end still stuck inside. And for a split second, it looks like the much bigger adult insect is riding the nymph like a miniature pony while swinging a lasso. Then it emerges moist, soft, complete. Its wings magically inflate with fluid, and shortly after, they harden. Not that they necessarily use them.
0: Some species are more mobile than others. For example, the American periodical cicadas, they're the ones with amazing life cycles 17 years and 13 years underground. Basically, Because they've received a lot of attention and research, they thought it would be a good idea to do some radio tracking of the cicadas, so they they did that. And they found that those particular individuals actually climbed up onto the tree, grew wings, got to the top of the tree, stayed there for the duration of their life, and then dropped down dead. But I think, in general, cicadas are actually quite capable of moving long distances when required. It depends on the species. The small grass cicadas are quite delicate, so they're probably more limited in their dispersal ability, but I think the larger ones, they've got quite well-developed wings, so they can, they can take off and fly a few hundred metres at a time when, when needed.
1: Even though the greengrocer's range overlaps with the habitation zone of the majority of the Australian human population and the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of the things every season, you are much more likely to have heard them Rather than to have seen them, they have an incredible, iconically
0: summer-themed song. Well, it's quite a it's quite a shrill sound, metallic. Um, it's it's a medium pitch, and it's a, basically a whine. And then and then they'll also go into a pulsing phase, so sort of sort of like a revving phase where they make distinct, discrete notes, like chirping in the song. But it's very it's very robust. They can get up to about 120 decibels, I believe. That's,
1: that's actually almost loud enough, really, to do damage to your ears.
0: Well, I think it would if you stayed around that noise source for long enough, potentially, yes, because it's basically like standing next to a jet engine, and if you've got multiple individuals surrounding you, then, <laughs> yes, you can imagine that it's very loud. Well, the bigger cicadas have this habit of uh, aggregating... So where you get one male calling, usually where where the first male is calling, you tend to get a whole heap of other cicadas exhibiting this thing called phonotaxis where they fly into where that other calling male is and they're able to sort of hone in on the sound.
1: If you were another bloke and you heard a male singing, why would you go over to where he's singing? Wouldn't you want to go somewhere else so you could attract the females over to
0: you? It's quite a complex system with the big cicadas. It's still a little bit kind of subtle in some ways because it seems that you have a male or a group of males that are singing and then the females are sort of hanging around them. And there's limited observation on this, but it looks basically like when there's a female been hanging around with a male singing for a while, at some point the male walks up and sort of gives her a nudge and if she stays there and is receptive, they will start mating. But there's been some observation of males that are just sitting there, not calling, and then they've got a female near them that has been attracted to another calling male, and they'll walk up to the female, even though they're not singing, and nudge the female, and the female will agree to mate with them, so...
1: He mows someone else's lawn. He harvests the next-door neighbour's tomatoes. He cuts in on the perfect wave. You get my drift. So the males are the ones that sing, and they're trying to attract a mate. It might not be your idea of a sweet serenade, but then you're not a female cicada and they don't all bust out the same pulsing rhythm. Each species has their own sound. This is the golden emperor doing his best to attract a mate. Do you hear that variation in his song? His yodelling. If I slow it right down, you might be able to hear his singing abilities a little better. He can change the rhythm and the notes that he sings. But how do they make that sound?
0: They've got a specialised organ on either side of the body at the junction of the abdomen and the thorax. It's basically a, a membrane, OK? And the membrane is made up of this protein called resolin, which is a very high-energy protein. Uh, to give an illustrated example, dragonflies in their wing muscles, at the base of the wings there, they, they've got resolin, so it's, it's quite rubber-like and able to sustain prolonged movement. So they've got these muscles that are attached to this membrane that's full of Resolin, and on the outside of the membrane is a series of sclerotized ribs, and the muscles buckle the membrane, um, which causes those ribs to buckle, and and the sound emanates from that and is amplified by the surrounding structures, including the abdomen.
1: So they use their own body as a sort of a little speaker.
0: That's right. So their body is an amplifier and they can they can move their abdomen to modulate the song, which means they can change the tone and pitch of the song by, by body movements while they're singing.
1: Have a listen to this granite squeaker. Its call is actually bitonal. So let's slow it right down. I mean, he's no Pavarotti, but it is interesting to hear the low go and the higher tss. now that you know, he's changing the notes by wiggling his body. But what about after sex?
0: So basically, once once mating has taken place, there's a bit of unknown about whether the female will mate multiple times or not, and that may be dependent on the species, after a while, she will then go and land on a substrate that she recognises as being suitable for laying the eggs in. So some species will lay in dead timber, others will lay in living timber, some will lay in the trunks of trees, others will lay on, in, in the twigs, in grass, small shrubs. There's various different microhabitats that they actually deposit the eggs into. And the females have got a scythe-like ovipositor, which basically cuts into the out of tissue of the tree in the bark and they pump a whole heap of eggs into there.
1: A scythe-like ovipositor makes my fallopian tubes look weak.
0: It'll lay a certain quantity into each groove, so there'll be a sequence of grooves. If you look at the stem later, you'll see where the tree's got a zip-like opening along it with small breaks in between where the eggs are and then the egg's take a couple of weeks to hatch then you've got these tiny little cicada nymphs they're really small and they make their way down to the soil and they burrow in and that's where the life cycle begins again once they've found a plant roots to uh, tap into and, and start their life cycle
1: What a beautiful and incredibly complex life cycle that is and also an incredibly important part of the food chain
0: Yes, um there's a lot of bird predation from cicadas. They, they have a bit of a field day when they're out. Particularly the migratory birds when they come down from Southeast Asia and New Guinea, they must think that Australia is, you know, it's just it's just cicada he- heaven because, you know, they they arrive in the summer and and then Australia's full of cicadas and they just hawk around, getting free food everywhere. Do they make good eating? Ah, oh, that's that's um, you're the first person to ask me that in an interview, and I'm happy to say that people do eat them in different parts of the world. They'll make all sorts of things, cicada kebabs. And I actually ran into a guy in Australia near Glen Ennis uh, who was running around rampantly collecting cicadas just as they were coming out of their shells and saying, this is this is the only time to get them because they're nice and soft and he was going to make a stroganoff. A cicada stroganoff. That's right.
1: yum Now, the greengrocer, what a wonderful and intriguing creature, but of course not the only species of cicada. How many do we have in Australia?
0: Described species, the number goes up fairly often because we're still in the process of discovering and describing a lot of the species. But it's above 250 now, heading towards 300. The actual estimate, and hopefully... I'll be speaking for most of the Cicada researchers when when I say this because it seems to be the the estimate that's agreed upon at the moment. 700 to 1,000 species.
1: So that means that only around a third of the species in Australia have been identified and named. And I have to say, the entomologists do have some fun with the names. For example, the aptly named Tick-Tock. The alarm clock squawker. Brace yourselves for this one. The coastal whiner. The fishing reel buzzer. The rapid ticker. You might not be able to hear that. It's so high-pitched and fast. Let me slow it down and lower the tone. the sprinkler squeaker. Wait for it.
0: There you go. I think golden twang is a nice call to to hear. It's quite distinctive. I gave it that name because if you, if you listen to the song, it's got quite a strong twang-like change in each each of the phrases, and then also it's got the sort of strange raspberry that comes after it, um, after a series of twangs, and, and that gives it a really distinctive and unusual sound.
1: Okay, so twangs and raspberries. Can you hear them? Let's break it down. Twang twang, raspberry, twang, raspberry, twang, raspberry. And then at full pace again. On top of that, there's a whole group of cicadas called the double drummers.
0: Yeah, so double drummers got quite an amazing song. It's very electric. It's got strong... Modulating and pulsing elements to it. It's like a electric saw, a real high, high-end whine. It, it's very metallic. Um, it's about as loud as they get. The eastern double drummer is Australia's largest cicada, about five centimetres, or a bit, a bit over that, in body length. And they're also a very, very wide cicada. In fact, another species of double drummer i think has the widest head of any australian insect um, so they're, they're a chunky beast
1: they do look like a little bit of a bullhead. i have to say i was looking them up on the internet in preparation for this interview and they are a sight to behold
0: yes they're pretty spectacular uh, with their real reddish brown coloration and some of the species have white markings others have black markings in fact, another name for the Eastern double drummer is the Union Jack because of the distinctive markings on the thorax. So.
1: And this is just one Eastern double drummer trying to drum up some female attention. It's an absolutely obnoxious sound for us. The sound is so dense. I did a count and it has about 220 or more pulses per second, per second. It's so dense, it's like a wall of sound. I have to slow it down so much just so that you can hear the pulses. And actually, each one of these pulses you can hear is actually two pushed closely together. Amazing
0: creatures. A lot of Australia has double drummers. The eastern double drummer is the desert double drummer, the orange drummer, which is a mini double drummer. So there's quite a few double drummers out there now.
1: Does it also make you feel slightly like you're researching in a Dr Seuss novel?
0: I like that aspect of it, I think. You know, we like to do things that are unique and, and interesting in life and, and I guess as cicadas are, are what, what's really grabbed me. You know, as you grow up, you... ..you basically... Uh, drawn to certain things and as someone interested in natural history from a young age guidebooks were very interesting I was on a field trip with another person who's now a colleague of mine as well uh, studying cicadas and I knew that he was trying to track down this cicada that was just making this sound just like a watch it was like tick 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 really sharp ticking sound I thought this this is incredible I chased that cicada around in a small bunch of bushes for about an hour and um, that sort of got me hooked. The clincher was the moment when I came back to Brisbane and then found that same species, which was a new species and a new genus, that had never been found and identified before. That same cicada that I found out west, I found in the local park. That's one we call the Eastern Ticker. It's a very small cicada. Its body length is about a centimetre. I'm glad I got onto it when I was young because I can't hear it anymore in the field.
1: Why is that?
0: The song is too high-pitched, so for young people, children, teenagers, you know about these mosquito ringtones that they have on their phones. The whole point of that is that uh, the parents can't hear that, but the kids can... And it's the same thing with these really small cicadas with their high-pitched songs. It's very hard for um, people, once they're older than 20, to be able to detect those sounds. Human hearing goes up to about 20 kilohertz when you're first born. Some, some people go a little bit higher than that even. But as we age, hearing deteriorates, so particularly those higher frequencies. But apparently uh, women, on average, I believe, tend to um, retain their hearing better than men.
1: find that the calls are beautiful?
0: I think it is interesting to me musically, in a sense, but I think I think the main alluring thing about cicadas is, yes, recording them, that's really I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. but also the thrill of the hunt of hearing something I've never heard before and then tracking it down and then starting the problem solving of, all right, where do you fit into the puzzle? It's still the age of discovery from my point of view, um, in terms of cicada biology.
1: Flowery bakers, black princes, winers, drummers, grinders, ringers, clickers, cherry noses, also called whiskey drinkers, and then there's the greengrocers. I hope you enjoyed your introduction to Cicada Song today and a huge thank you to Dr Lindsay Popple, entomologist and sound recordist for this episode. I'm Ann Jones, I produce What the Duck with Patria Ladgrove and script editing from Joel Werner. This episode was made on Gadigal, Wadawurrung and Ghana country. Hey Duckers, Jonathan Green here. I'm host of Return Ticket, another fabulous podcast that you are going to love. That's my solemn pledge. We take journeys of the mind. Uh, we think of a place. We don't go there, but we ask questions about it and we kind of travel in our heads. Uh, questions like... Why is Kuala Lumpur so rubbery? Uh, Does bread make Paris or does Paris make bread? Uh, What's making Venice drown? And the key question, I think, of our age for any thinking Australian, why is Tasmania so terrible? All these questions, places familiar, places strange, new angles on both of those. Just search return ticket on the ABC Listen app. You'll know you've found it when you see the little... Orange Square with a stripy aeroplane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.